1: Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming. Whatever you do with the podcast, we appreciate you guys being a part of it and checking it out each and every week. It is free, as you know, via podcastone.com and iTunes. New episodes every Thursday. And everybody loving Michael Anthony last week. If you didn't download that, by all means, what are you waiting for? One of the great guys in rock music, one of the a really, you know, a guy like I often talk about, like you know, a guy like Brian Johnson. He's kind of in that same world. Brian uh, Michael Anthony, one of the, you know, original members of one of the the biggest, most incredible, influential bands of all time in Van Halen. And he doesn't act like it. He's a regular dude. I love him. I absolutely love him. It was great having him on. It's always fun to talk to him. A lot of great response to that interview last week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And, again, if you missed that or any of the last few, be sure to go back and grab them before they expire. Of course, the Eddie Trunk Podcast is free each and every week. We'd like to thank all of our great sponsors for that. Uh, Because of them, we can bring you this show with limited ads at no cost to you, and remember, you can help us out because if you heard a sponsor that you want to try out or you forgot about a sponsor and you want to see a list of my sponsors, you can access them by going to the Killer Deals button at PodcastOne.com and visiting the Eddie Trunk Podcast page. Just hit me in the search bar there. Go to com, enter my name in the search bar, and uh, you'll see my page come up, and you'll see the Killer Deals button. You'll see the episode still available And we appreciate you doing that and checking out those sponsors. We uh, approve sponsors that make sense for my audience, so it's stuff that should be relative to you. And each of my sponsors are listed there. There's banners linked to the promotional deals that they have to offer and all the various brands, everything you need in one place. So it's very helpful if you go there. And uh, it'll help you out, too, because it's stuff you should or might be interested in and get great deals on. In addition, the Eddie Trunk Podcast is a participant in the Amazon Associates program. That's an affiliate advertising program designed to provide a means for me to earn fees by linking to Amazon.com and affiliated sites. You can link to Amazon, once again, at podcast podcast1.com on my page. So... I am, uh, at the time you're hearing this, again, if you're hearing this on the Thursday post day, I am on my way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I will be spending around nine days in that area of the country coming up. Fly in Thursday. Friday, I do my Sirius XM show on volume live from there, Friday afternoon. And then I run straight out to Pryor, Oklahoma, kick off day one of Rocklahoma. Rocklahoma is a festival that I have had the honor of hosting every day that it happened, uh, that it's happened since it started back, or every year it's happened, I should say, since it started back in 2007. And I will be doing the honors once again. So I look forward to seeing everybody in Pryor, Oklahoma, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for this year's Rocklahoma. Can't believe it's here already. And then normally I would come home on Monday, Memorial Day, but I'm actually going to be staying in the Tulsa area for the entire week, not coming back till June 2nd, and that is because I'm hosting, I'm actually coming back June 3rd because June 2nd I'm hosting a show with Tom Kiefer in Tulsa at the IDL Ballroom. I was just there to host a show with Dawkins not too long ago, and it just didn't make sense to come home and go back I used to be able to get a direct flight from New Jersey into Tulsa, and they did away with them. So it's a little bit of a, you know, seven, eight-hour thing to get there now with connections. So it didn't make sense to come back financially or time-wise, and I'm going to hang out there for the week. I'm going to do my radio show on volume, my daily show, Trunk Nation on volume, every day, Monday to Friday. I'm going to do it every day or actually not Monday because it's a holiday, but Tuesday through Friday, every day from from 1 to 3, which it is on local time, 2 to 4 Eastern. And I'm going to do it from the Hard Rock Casino in Tulsa. Apparently they have a radio booth there. So if you are in that area of the country, follow me on Twitter. As I always say, that's the best way to get up to the second information, and that is at Eddie Trunk. And I'll let you know where I'm going to be, and if you can come by, and if you can watch the radio show, or it's a situation where I can have an audience, I'll let you know. Vince Neal's playing out there next week, so maybe I'll grab Vince and get him on for a show and uh, have the Kiefer show on Friday. There's always some stuff going on there at the Hard Rock. I appreciate them hosting me, and it should be a lot of fun to spend some time with the good people in Tulsa who have been so supportive of me ever since I first went there back in 2007. So looking forward to that. Now, one of the things with the uh, Rocklahoma show is that, like Rock on the Range last weekend, which I did not attend this year, but the thing with uh, Rocklahoma is that one of the headlining bands, the headlining band on Saturday night, was supposed to be Soundgarden. And this is the first time I'm doing a new podcast for you guys since the news of Chris Cornell's suicide came out. Last week when that news broke, uh, usually when you hear the, the podcast new on Thursday, it's usually by like the Tuesday, about a day and a half to two days before you, you know, you first hear this, do I record the open, uh, this segment you're hearing now. So I did not and could not address the Chris Cornell stuff because last week's podcast was already recorded. But obviously it's tragic. We've seen a million uh, tributes to Chris. And he was without question one of the great voices in rock music, especially in recent times. Just an unbelievable vocalist. When people would always ask me about bands that I like from that era, and I really hate to put sort of tags on bands and categorize them, but predominant, you know, commonly called the grunge era. I always said Soundgarden, and that is predominantly because of Chris Cornell's voice. I mean, yes, of course, I like the songs. I like the material. I really do. But Chris Cornell's voice, anybody that knows anything about me, my trip has always been vocals. I have to hear great vocals, great singing, or, or at least singing that I like that attracts my ear. Um, and how could you listen to Chris Cornell sing and not be amazed at his ability as a singer? I remember we did something on that metal show once and we did Soundgarden versus Audio Slave because Tom Morello or I'm sorry, it was Audio Slave versus Rage Against the Machine. Which Morello band did you like the most? Because Tom was the guest on the show. And I remember clearly against the grain, I picked Audio Slave because of Chris Cornell's voice. I mean, I just I was a huge fan of his his vocals like everybody was. And I interviewed Chris twice. One time he came, we did a, a That Metal Show special from England, like in '09, And he was there, and he came and sat and talked with us. And that was, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I remember we had a good conversation there. But the more vivid experience for me was a couple years before that, I was doing some TV work for MSG Network, which is a local channel in New York. And they carry Knicks and Rangers games. They're owned by Madison Square Garden. But at the time, they were trying to do some stuff in the music space, and they hired me to do music interviews. And I went to the Beacon Theater in New York, where Chris Cornell was playing two nights as a solo act. And I interviewed him late at night after he performed on stage that night. And I was amazed at how great the show was. We had a great conversation. It was for TV. I have the video somewhere. And then after the interview was over, I, and I never, I did not know Chris Cornell well at all, I I didn't know him at all outside of doing those interviews. But he said to me, What'd you think of the show? And I said, I loved it, man. Your voice sounded great, whatever. I said, The only thing I was bummed about, Chris, was you didn't do Fell on Black Days, which is one of my favorite Soundgarden songs. He goes, Oh no, I go, Why didn't you do that? He said, Ah, oh, I, just, I just didn't put it in tonight. I said, Oh, I would have loved to have heard that one, but all good, man. Great show. I'll I'll catch you next time. And I'm starting to leave the dressing room and he said he stops me. He goes, Hey, uh he goes, he coming to tomorrow's show? And I said, I wasn't planning on it. And he said, I'm going to put your name on the guest list. Why don't you come tomorrow? He said, I'll play Fell on Black Bays if you do. <laughs> so I I said, oh, all right, well, I appreciate that. And sure enough, next day, showed up at the Beacon. My name's at the list. I go to my seats. And uh, halfway through the set, Chris Cornell walks up to the mic, and he goes, hey, um, so I want to do a request for uh, – a friend that I met last night for the first time. Uh, this is fell on black days, and I was like, it was amazingly cool. I mean, it was super cool for him to have done that, and that's all I knew about the guy. I mean, I didn't know him personally, really, at all. Soundgarden actually did a special deluxe edition of Bad Motorfinger recently, and I was very honored because they reached out to me and a bunch of other people, you know, musicians and people, I guess that they they like or respect, and asked if they would contribute quotes to Bad Motor Finger for the special edition about what the record meant to them. So I was really honored to be included in that, and I was. And and in those conversations, which were very recent, when I I sent the quote in, and the record has since come out, I, I said to their camp, I said, I'd love to do something with the guys around this release, and can we do something? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll work something out. And sadly, that never happened. And of course, the guys in Soundgarden are needless to say, grieving and not talking right now. And I understand and respect that. It'll be interesting to see what happens with them. There have been a number of people that have raised the question to me and said, do you think Soundgarden could continue? And where the knee-jerk reaction to that could be, what are you, crazy? Nobody could replace Chris Cornell. Well, take a look at what we've seen throughout history in the music industry lately just about everybody has been replaced. People you never thought in life could be replaced because they were such key members and, and, and viewed as irreplaceable have been replaced. So I, it's way too soon to have that conversation. It's very hard to consider and even think of, a, of Soundgarden without Chris Cornell. I have no idea. I, again, I don't know those guys that well at all, so I don't know what their thought process is, but I think when things settle and they get past this a little bit, We'll see what they all decide to do, if anything. But condolences to the Soundgarden camp and Chris Cornell's family and friends. I uh, It's hard to comprehend what the man did. Uh, but then again, I have no experience, thankfully, in any sort of depression or mental illness, either personally or within my family. So it's very hard to kind of get your head around the whole thing. But clearly, the man was very, very ill and... um in a lot of pain and it's hard to comprehend that he could have done that especially when you deal with you're looking at a guy that has a family and all the success and all the talent in the world but what I've said to people who have brought that up to me too is that just speaks to just how ill he really was and it's a it's an amazing tragedy so uh, Soundgarden obviously not on rocklahoma in any way i will be hosting that and they've they've added live to the lineup the band live who have been kind of inactive for a while and now all of a sudden have come back and they're just they're getting these great slots on festivals and people are seeming to revisit and get back to their get back into live again which is cool and i'll tell you what that speaks to something i've said all the time you you have bands that i think over tour and destroy their draw and I've always said sometimes less is more. You play a little less, you go away, and then you come back and they want you again and they'll pay more for you. And I don't think there's a better example of that than Live right now who dropped off the radar. You know, they had a few hits in the 90s. They did well. They had a couple big records. But my goodness, they're getting some unbelievable opportunity now. And obviously the thing with Soundgarden came out of uh, out of a tragic event. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying they've they've gotten – in. if Live would have continued to play all the time, and play every day somewhere, and play every week somewhere, I don't think people would be looking at live in the same lens as they are now with a band that, from my vantage point at least, I could be wrong, seems to have been away for a while. So I think that that's a lesson that a lot of bands should learn, that sometimes playing a little less actually helps in the long run a whole lot. But I see so many bands that overture. And I can tell you this, you know, a lot of people have asked me, too, about Buck Cherry because they know I'm close to Buck Cherry. And Keith Nelson, the founding member, co-founding member and guitarist, is out of the band. Xavier, the drummer, Xavier Muriel, left. And now Josh Todd has got three bands with Stevie, the other guitar player from Buck Cherry. Josh has taken over the band Buck Cherry, replaced Keith and X. Josh has another band with Stevie called Josh Todd and the Conflict. And Josh has uh, was doing sort of a rap metal thing with Stevie, I think called Spray Gun or something. So there is an exact example of what I'm talking about. I know that, and I met Keith as a friend, as are all the guys. But Keith said that in his view, he thought Buck Cherry needed to take a break. It had been touring nonstop, had to take a little time off, and uh, and 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 do some other things. Where the other Josh clearly disagreed. So they have splintered and. Keith Nelson, founding member of Buck Cherry, out of the band. And as is Xavier, who agreed with Keith, and Stevie and Josh are going to continue to run with it and go out there and play. And I'll be seeing them at Rock Loma this week. So everybody has different mentalities and ways they do things. And that is the music business today. It is the Wild West. <laughs> Anything goes, man. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, I... Uh, let's roll forward and get ready for our interview. Again, follow me on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, Instagram, at Eddie Trunk, Facebook fan page, just Eddie Trunk, and eddietrunk.com is the website. Music news updated daily on my website. Sign copies of either of my books directly from me on my website. My blog, all of my appearances are right on the homepage, and much more. Take a look at it uh, often and check that news every day. Music news, my blog, my appearances, eddietrunk.com. And there's a merch store there, too, if you'd like to buy T-shirts, hats, and that sort of stuff as well. Appreciate all the support. Good to see you guys out there wearing it. And don't forget that um, each and uh, every day you can hear me on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, where many of the interviews you hear on the podcast originate. I'm on live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Channel 106 Volume, All Rock Talk, and your calls and your interviews. That show replays every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. I also do a sixth show live on SiriusXM, Mondays only, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Channel 39. You've got my syndicated radio show on in great cities like Kansas City and New York City and Boston. Complete list of all the affiliates is on my website. And, of course, this podcast. So a lot of ways to connect and some new, new things in the works as well. So keep an eye on all my social media, and I will keep you posted. The interview for you this week, you guys love when I do the in, the uh, producers, right? I hear from people who love the interviews with the producers, and I love talking to the producers. Bob Ezrin was one of the more recent ones we did. I did Bob Rock a long time ago. This week, I've got one that I'm really excited about, and, I again, this originally originated on my radio show. It is with another guy that's an absolute legend in the world of rock production, and that is Ron Nevison. Maybe if you don't know Ron, it's a household name, I get that, but you probably have a record in your collection that Ron Nevison worked on. When Ron Nevison was like, 1820. He worked on the Who's Quadrophenia. <laughs> he has he was known as the fixer guy in the 80s. He would come in and resurrect these bands. Maybe none more synonymous than with the work he did with Heart, where he brought Heart back with "What About Love" and these dreams and all that sort of stuff. He is uh, he's worked with Star uh, Starship, Jefferson Starship, and he's worked with countless, countless bands. Oh, by the way, he was one of the engineers on Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti. Kiss Crazy Nights. Uh, The list goes on and on of the work that Ron Nevison did and still continues to do. For me, Ron Nevison produced probably my favorite album of all time, and that is UFO Strangers in the Night. Also did the studio records for UFO, like Walk on Water and Lights Out and Obsession worked on Bad Company Records, an absolute legend in the world of music production. And we've been talking a a bunch of them, like I said, Ezra and Bob Rock, and I'll continue to work in the producers as we go forward on the Eddie Trunk Podcast from time to time, because I love talking to the the behind-the-scenes guys. So that's what you get this week. Nice, long interview with Ron. I did not get to interview him in person. We did this over the phone, but... As you'll hear, quality was not an issue. We have uh, we have good connect, and it was all good. So let's get into it. Coming up, the Eddie Trunk Podcast, which is produced by Katie Irizarry for another week with the legendary Ron Nevison talking about all of the great bands that he worked with and music production and how he got his start and how, as a young kid, he worked on Quadrophini and Physical Graffiti. Imagine having that on your resume. Ron Nevison is my guest and he is on the Eddie Trunk podcast coming right up. The Eddie Trunk podcast. While you want to feel comfortable, you're getting a fair price, right? When you're buying a car, you need pricing context to do that information that empowers you to feel confident. Well with True car, you'll see what other people in your local market paid for the True car. Or for, I should say, for the car you want with TrueCar, It's it's awesome. From there, you can connect with the local TrueCar certified dealers, and you can enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Because using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. And then TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident and once you register you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a TrueCar certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. And with TrueCar, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. TrueCar customers customers they are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with TrueCar certified dealers and TrueCar users they save an average of over 3 grand off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states.
0: Today on Geffen Playhouse Unscripted, we are joined by actor, producer, director, author, what else can you do, Brian Cranston? <laughs> I sweep floors. You do. And I load a dishwasher really, really well. Do you unload it? Not too many many
2: We could give you a job in our house. The
0: talent is loading it, not unloading. No,
1: the talent is buying the dishes that fit together and not the dishes that I buy that don't fit in the dishwasher.
2: Well, I could teach you how they can fit. Okay, Brian,
1: thank you. That's Brian Cranston on Geffen
2: Playhouse Unscripted. Be sure to listen on Podcast One or through the Podcast One app and Apple Podcasts.
1: This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, let's get into it. Our interview this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast is with producer Ron Nevison. Enjoy. Thank you, Ron, for Thanks. some time. I greatly appreciate it, man. How are you today? I'm
0: good. My pleasure.
1: So I'm uh man, I, I'm not even quite sure where to dig in. Looking over your resume, it's pretty amazing. But when I talk to producers, one of the things that I love to do is really try to get a handle on where it all started for them in terms of the music bug. Uh, what what was your first exposure to music? Mm. What got you interested in music, either as a performer or what would eventually lead to being a producer? So was there music in your house? What was your first exposure?
0: Well, yeah, my mom was a piano teacher who was uh, going for her degree at the Philadelphia Conservatory of Music, which puts me in Philadelphia, where I grew up. And um, my, uh, I think, second or third grade teacher sent a note home to my mom saying that uh, Ronnie uh, is drunks doing some great drawings. You might consider uh, Saturday uh, they have a program for kids at the Tyler School of Fine Arts uh, and she did that to, to make a long story uh, short she took me to this uh, 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 to the Saturday program and they were doing choir next door. And I kind of, like, did one semester of, of that on Saturdays, and I, I joined the choir. And through the choir, and have my mom, you know, piano, being a piano teacher, uh, and I was, you know, schooled in uh, Mozart and, uh, you know, singing Christmas carols. I was actually a soprano <laughs> a soloist, and I dragged my brother into it my brother who is three years older than me, David, uh, started, uh, with, with us, uh, and that lasted a couple of years. And, uh, so, um, uh, gosh, from there, that was the musical bug, I guess. And, uh, um, from there, I, I guess I, after high school, I always wanted to be in the music business and I, I tried singing in doo groups, uh, I tried managing a couple of bands in the in the hippie days uh, in the early mid '60s and um, uh, mid '60s, I I would say. And I ended up uh, producing a concert uh, for Vanilla Fudge in Allentown. Really, um, I had had to hire a sound company. I did it with this company that was like a selling bell bottoms called the Thirteenth Street Conspiracy in Philadelphia. And uh, I did all the legwork and they put up the the cash to to, to put on this concert. We ended up breaking even on the concert, uh, but it was a great experience. And I hired a sound company called Festival Group to do the sound for the show. And they ended up hiring me. So I started a a two or three year journey of of doing uh, 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 live music. And I started out uh, hauling big boxes around and driving the truck and then i graduated to kind of doing monitors and then i from there i went to you know front of house uh pa mixing which gave me a, a pretty awesome perspective uh, perspective of performance and uh i did that for years and i did um you know very big acts at the end of that uh era for me uh including jefferson airplane um uh, traffic uh, and um, uh, Dirk and the Dominoes, or Clapton uh, I did his monitors uh, Joe Cocker Mad Dogs and Englishmen all in the 68 69 70 kind of uh, region
1: and, let and me just jump out. in let me just jump in a second Ron the, sure. the actual want, tech the actual Am well, I yeah, too much? Because... No 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 I love this stuff but I'm curious you 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 put on this concert and you made the the, yeah. the you know the change from going to then actually being the guy behind the console mixing you know doing front of house or whatever who did somebody teach you the ropes did somebody show you how to run a board and how to mix was there were there guys that you well, learned under yeah, that's a
0: that's a very good question because uh, the two things that the two things i was passionate about as a kid was music and electronics now, when I was a kid, I was saving up my money for for 45s, but I was also saving up any allowance and buying transistors and building little radios and you know getting schematics from popular electronics and uh, building Heath kits and doing all sorts of electronic stuff. So, kind of had a so little bit of like up yeah. there. It was in there, and so I mean, I'm very happy to have ended up making a career out of music and electronics. In the end, those are the two things that, that I was passionate about as a kid. But uh, sure. I, I, must, I must tell you that, uh, that I was getting burnt out uh, from, uh, yeah, after a couple of years of driving trucks and, uh, and setting up and tearing down and life on the road is, is, uh, is at that level at that time was very tough.
1: So where is the, the transition made from that to getting into a recording studio? What's the first call that you get the, to actually work well, on a record? Well,
0: here, here's, here's what happened. Uh, I was uh, doing a tour with uh, Steve Winwood in traffic, and uh, I was riding with Chris Blackwell, who was the head of Island Records, mm-hmm. uh, in a car from in Ohio or somewhere like that, uh, driving from gig to gig, just Chris and I. And I was uh, telling him that... Uh, him that I was getting burnt out from uh, from th- years of uh, <laughs> this life I loved doing it but I wanted to take my skills and hone them in the studio I wanted to take what I what I'd learned in, in mixing and I had learned a lot about microphones and preamps and EQ and effects and all that stuff and I wanted to get in the studio he says well you know I'll give you a job at island studios you know you start at the bottom and that's what happened uh, long story short, I moved uh, to England in, uh, I think, 1970, late 70, and started working uh, as a what they called a tape op, a, a second engineer at Island Studios on Basing Street in London. And uh, that's how I started to, uh, the transition from live mixer to a guy that made tea for rock stars.
1: <laughs> well, that's a big move for a kid from the Philadelphia area at that point to get on a plane and relocate to London.
0: It was a big move, and especially uh, the pay was fifteen pounds a week, which was about thirty dollars a week, thirty-five dollars a week. Wow. So I took a big, I took a big hit there. But uh, uh, I'd done fairly well as a sound mixer, not incredibly well, but, you know, I had some saved up to, to kind of for this transition. And um, I was also really at that time, after after being on tour with uh, Dirk and the Dominoes and Traffic, and uh, I was really into the, the English band thing. Uh, and uh, um, so it was magical time for me for
1: sure well you know you you mentioned that that's an interesting thing that you say because as uh, growing up and and being a fan of so many of the records that you've made and seeing your credit on so many of them i had always until just not too long ago actually had assumed that you were british you know <laughs> most because people
0: you, do. Yeah, most people yeah, do. i get that a lot I'm,
1: I mean, especially you look at your early resume with Bad Company, The Stones, The Who, uh, Thin Lizzy, uh, Led Zeppelin. You would you would assume, oh, this guy is a yeah. guy that is, is from the U.K. and was over there, and that's where he, he came up. But it actually started with a, a vanilla fudge show in Allentown. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> it started in third grade, yeah. But yeah, yes, well, even earlier, did. yeah. And, uh, that's exactly right. It started with uh, meeting a guy named Dave Hadler, who's now passed sadly uh and festival group who were part of the electric factory concert people and that still exist in philadelphia and they uh, it was uh, it was during that era when the festivals happened like woodstock and i was actually at woodstock with jefferson airplane on tour uh and uh, got that experience uh and that was the last year that i was touring uh doing sound and then and, and uh it was a whole new, whole new thing when I got to England. So, um,
1: so, so, let me ask you: What is the first gig that you get, and what is your first, you know, job working, you know, not get, not making tea? Like, what's the first real record that you had a chance to really work on?
0: Well, I, I messed up after a year at Island. I messed up. Somebody's engineer didn't turn up. And they asked me if I would do a session by myself. You weren't supposed to kind of do that. And I did it. I think it was probably on a Sunday, but they found out about it and the studio manager fired me. So all of a sudden, I'm out of a job, but I had a lot of connections. I still had connections. And when I first actually moved to London uh, to work at Island Studios, I stayed at Steve Winwood's house. Uh, He put me up there. And so I had had a lot of people. Uh, I was friends with Bobby Whitlock, who was Eric Clapton's uh, keyboard player in Derek and the Dominoes. And um, I kind of stayed with him for a while. And uh, and then I stayed with Eric Clapton at his house. He was building a studio. Uh, This guy, Sandy Brown, was building a studio for him. And uh, I helped out. And I even roadied for Eric a little bit. At Olympic Studios during the the, the final *Dirk and the Dominoes* album that didn't didn't uh, get finished, uh, and I was just there when they broke up. Actually, wow! But uh, I was staying with him. I was just taking his. Uh, I was being a, a guitar roadie. I was taking his uh, his Marshall and his Fenders and his guitars to the studio and changing strings and you know doing the things that one does when they're a guitar roadie. I did that for a couple of weeks and watched his house when he went to, uh, to France uh, for a wine tour with his girlfriend. And um, I answered an ad in Melody Maker. This is what this is leading up to. And um, it was for somebody that was building studios uh, in, in kind of uh, musicians' homes. It was a company called Track Plan. Now, Track Plan was owned by Pete Townsend, and they he got together with the company, and they were building these mixing consoles with a combined eight-track recording machine, and 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 they're putting it in like Roger Daltrey's uh, Roger Daltry's home, and Cat Stevens, and they had a bunch of clients, and Ronnie Lane, uh, bless his heart. Uh, from the Faces, Uh, wanted, uh, it was Buzz with Pete Townsend, by the way, they're really close friends, lived in Twickenham area in London. He wanted to do his own mobile studio, and he had bought an Airstream uh, trailer to that effect, uh, stripped down. And one of the projects uh, he asked Trackplane to do was take that and build him a mobile controller. And that was my first project with TrackPlan. So I built a studio for Ronnie Lane, which uh, I ended up using for the first part of the, the Quadrophenia album because the Who were also building a studio that wasn't ready yet. And I think that the engineer that they were going to use, and I don't really remember who it was, was either intoxicated or some for some reason couldn't make the sessions, and uh, they then they hired um, you know Ronnie Lane's mobile uh, this this airstream to uh, to do the tracking, and I guess they thought, well, we don't have an engineer, so let's let the guy that built the studio do it. <laughs> so that's how I fell into that one.
1: And, and you know, that was Quadrophenia?
0: So yeah, that was Quadrophenia. They liked me so much that they kept me for the whole album and more. So, um, yeah, that's how I kind of like uh, that all happened by answering an ad in Melody Maker magazine.
1: Wow. So now, I, did I, have,
0: mean... I did have a lot of experience. I had a year or two of experience in, as an engineer at that point, but not any uh, major records. So, uh, yeah, that's and from there, you know, it was easy from there. Led Zeppelin wanted to do something out at uh, at uh, Headland Range and, and they wanted a mobile studio. There's only two mobile studios in England at the time. The Rolling Stones had one and Ronnie Lane's, the one I built. And so they hired me to do that. And um, also uh, Led Zeppelin's manager uh, also managed. Paul Rogers band. They weren't called bad company yet. And hired me to go out and do that. And that became the first bad, bad code, first bad company album. So, so how uh, old are yeah. so how
1: old are you at this point, Ron? Are you in your early twenties?
0: Uh, I was mid twenties, 1970. I was 25.
1: So you're, so this
0: was 70. I was 29, I guess. By this point, 73 is when I did quadrophenia. So I'd been kicking around in England for at least two years, uh, doing sessions and uh, uh, before I built the mobile studio, and then that kind of translated into getting hired by The Who. So, 73, I was 28. Yeah.
1: Wow. Amazing. Um, um, I want to talk a little bit more about that period and, and of course, go forward from there, but I want to talk about... Uh, the who and, and zeppelin physical graffiti of course the record you have credits on um let's let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll continue okay. we're talking with ron nevison so much more to get to so much more to cover in uh, ron's incredible career we'll do it right after this this, this is the eddie trunk podcast Established in 2011, BarkBox is committed to making dogs happy and they work with local and independent businesses to achieve this. In fact, they only work with vendors who also care deeply about the health and happiness of dogs. BarkBox is concerned with all dogs, even those who don't have a human to call their own. And they support shelters, rescues, and nonprofits across the U.S. that help dogs find their forever homes. And they've shipped over 16 million toys and treats so far. And they've also learned a ton about what engages dogs by doing this. Aside from the unique and fun paw ducks from local vendors found in each bark box, the company itself designs many of their own products through their bark and company brand. And they paw pick the best all natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies. So Bark Box, you get it delivered. It's a delivery of uh, four to six, say, natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. What you do is you tell them how big your dog is, you choose a plan, you can get stuff once uh, once every month, every six months, every 12 months, all kinds of plans available. You can cancel anytime, any time, and there's free shipping. And then you get BarkBox with all the cool stuff in it. Every month, you get all the great toys, all the cool stuff. Everything is, all the edibles, they're made in the U.S. or Canada. 100% of the products are tested on their own animals, folks. And each month, there's a a theme to the box. Like I said, you got free shipping, new and unique toys, keeps your dogs engaged, interested, and happy. Really, really great stuff. Comes right to your door, and you do not want to, uh, if you have a dog, you absolutely have to try this service. So check this out, if you go to getbarkbox.com slash trunk, T-R-U-N-K, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, that's it, take care of your dog, hook up your dog, try it for free, getbarkbox.com slash T-R-U-N-K, and you will get a free extra month, check it out. Hey, I'm Emmanuel Acho, host of Beyond the Film Room, where we take the muzzle off the mouth of premier athletes. Every Thursday, join me and your favorite sports figures as we tackle the uncharted topic of sport and discuss the far-reaching impact outside of the stadium itself. Download episodes every Thursday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. We're just beginning to scratch the surface so much I want to get into with Ron and we'll pick it up with him working on his first records, which uh, really sounds like, you know, what was Quadrophenia by The Who. And and I'm wondering, Ron, for you walking into that situation, I mean, I don't know how vivid your memories are of it, but but can you take us? I mean, do you know what you're working on at that point? Do you realize the enormity? Do you realize the timelessness, the greatness of it? Or are you just kind of taking it on as another gig?
0: Well, firstly, I remember every second. And secondly, I wasn't aware of the enormity of the whole situation because my my first uh, hire, the Ronnie Lane's mobile firstly was only eight track and it had a 16 channel board, but quality stuff had a Studer eight track machine, a one inch analog machine, and it had a, a, a Helios console, which was great, great microphones and. And they were building a, a, uh, a studio uh, in Battersea, in Battersea section of London called Ramport, where the, the studio part was finished, but the control room was not. And they were using a big Helios console and a 16-track, I believe, at that time. Uh, and they just pulled the mobile studio up next to the studio uh, to accomplish getting the tracks done because the control room in their studio wasn't finished. And so uh, I just thought I was going to do that. And then they, they liked what they heard. And, and when the other one was finished, uh, when the other control room was finished, we just switched over. And uh, at, at one point during a weekend, I remember... Getting the engineers from Studer to come and make the 8-track into (laughs) 16-track. And if you can picture an Airstream, uh, you know, the way it's, um, uh, you can't have something like straight up, because it's almost a cigar-shaped tube, tubular kind of. uh, And so we had to put eight of the channels underneath the motor and eight above to accomplish (laughs) this. And then we got hum noises into the, it was, you know, anyway, it was a quite a weekend, just changing it from eight to 16. And so we did actually a few of the backing tracks, the drum tracks and um with eight track.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and we so from 16. So from there, and I know that um, mm. when when that when Quadrophenia came out, there was a review of it that specifically pointed out the engineering of the record, which you did. So that had to be a great a great boom to you, as far as setting you off on your path to to continue on that road. Well, yes,
0: and and not only that, I did uh, pretty much, except for some of the sound effects. Uh, I did have all the engineering. Uh, now, Pete had his own studio. He did a lot of the synthesizer stuff at his studio because it was very time-consuming, and the synthesizers in those days was early days. And there, won't, there weren't programs. You had to kind of like get each sound, and you couldn't save it. So uh, it wouldn't be uh, very useful. Like now you can, there's a, a string program. You just push strings, or you push horns, or you push this, and you can modify them. But in those days, there wasn't that. And so Pete did a lot of his stuff at home, but yeah, I was very proud of the fact that I did that, and Pete and I mixed it together, and so it was a, a all all in project for me. So that was uh, actually the best part of it
1: for me. And then, did you con- continue your relationship with the Who at all at that point? Did you 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 did some some other work with them as well, right?
0: I did. I did the uh, film tra- uh, film soundtrack for the Tommy film. I did all of that. Uh, we pre-recorded that uh, soundtrack before anything was shot. So uh, I had Ann Margaret singing and Oliver Reed and and Jack Nicholson was the the doctor and Tina Turner was the acid queen. Elton John was the uh, pinball wizard. So yeah, I got to work with uh, all those people and we did that at the Who's studio. Uh, And um, then we mixed down I uh, did rough mixes uh, for them to shoot on location for the shoot. And then we. And let me... and then after the shoot was finished, we came back and we did some, some more incidental music and looped some stuff. And we did more work on it uh, when they had shot scenes that were longer or shorter than they thought.
1: And let me ask mm-hmm. you about Physical Graffiti as well, because that was a record that was there were different people involved at different times it was kind of pulled together in different ways so you right. you got attached to that in because you had this mobile unit because you were attached right. to the equipment or what did jimmy page reach out to you how did that work exactly well
0: i i think that they reached out to the ronnie lane mobile and since i had done the Quadrophenia record. I guess I got a a recommendation. I'm not really clear on on exactly how that happened. But I got the call to take it to Hampshire, and uh, they had worked at this house before with the Rolling Stones truck uh, prior to this with Houses of the Holy. And unbeknownst to me, uh, when this album was finished, they, they pulled a lot of those songs or were not outtakes as such, but they were songs that were recorded, but not used for Houses of the Holy. And so it ended up being a double album. But uh, the nine songs that I worked on, I think it was nine, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin had a, had a kind of a habit of using the engineer that was available uh, at the studio that they worked at. They would go to New York and use an engineer. They didn't have a guy like fly with them to New York. Uh, and uh, they used the guy that was running the mobile studio, and that was me. So I was happy to do it and had a great time doing it.
1: Because there were di- – I know Andy Johns had done some work on it. Eddie Kramer sure. was involved. So you had there were a lot of different people. Do you rem- – you re- you, so you worked on specific tracks on the record, well, but not everything because of right. where it er- had originated from.
0: Well, because of the mobile situation, uh, that was only the, the drum tracks and some overdubs, bass and some guitars. Uh, and then they would go into like Olympic Studios and and do more work on it. And then they'd maybe take it somewhere to mix it. So there might be three different engineers. And if you look at Houses of the Holy, which was done a couple of years before that, then there's maybe three more engineers on that. So there's probably a half a dozen engineers involved in, in that one album.
1: And there's photos uh, of that. No. What, well, what, but what I was going to say is, there's photos of that yeah. house and the that 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 unit and all that because uh, I know Eddie Kramer and Eddie was a photographer yeah. as well and he he put some of those photos out. There's right. he was selling them at one point where you see the guys actually walking around on the lawn and I guess that is that actual unit, right? That the one of the the mobile units no. was that no, one no, of no. yours?
0: I, I think I think if it looks like a truck, it's the Rolling Stones mobile. Uh, If it looks like an Airstream trailer, it's the one I built. Wow. So the one I built is called LMS, Lanes Mobile Sound, and it still is in use today. Wow. You you could actually, there is a website, LMS Studio, uh, and um, yeah, that will come up.
1: Now you're oh, not man. a you're not a producer at this point. You're an engineer, and you're you're working in right. that capacity. But you're working Correct. already. You're working under Pete Townsend and Jimmy Page, who of course produced Led Zeppelin. Uh, did 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 you get to have a lot of uh, did the interaction with those guys uh, help shape you as as you would go on to become a, a producer in your own right? Well, yeah, sure.
0: I mean, I, I did work with a limited uh, number of producers when I was an engineer, training and an engineer at, uh, at Island Studios. But mainly, these bands were producing themselves. Like Bad Company was, all the guys were pitching in as a producer. You know, uh, Zeppelin had Jimmy, and uh, and the Who had Pete, and uh, I would be the guy sitting behind the console, and they, you know, they would ask me how that, what that, what I thought of performance or uh, what I thought of this or that, and you know, I'd give my opinion. And, and, uh, so I learned a lot and they learned a lot, I guess too, you know? Uh, it's,
1: it's, 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 um, and the, and did your, did your, uh, your relationship with Led Zeppelin didn't go beyond the stuff that was on physical graffiti, right? That was the only thing you'd done with them? Well, I can
0: tell you this story. Unfortunately it didn't. And I'll tell you why there was a situation that happened, uh, in the fall, I think the fall of '74. I can't remember exactly when it was, but we were supposed to start work on on the quad on the um, uh, physical graffiti track tracking, and uh, John Paul Jones couldn't make it some kind of I never really got the reason why either he was sick or had some kind of personal issues. And uh, so we hung around for a few days, and we were just doing old Elvis songs, and stuff like that. And uh, they then they just said, Well, let's come back in two weeks or something. And I came back in two weeks, and we worked for a while. And then there was Christmas, and I had to start the Tommy film. I previously Told Pete that I was going to do that. And uh, I really wanted to do that. And so I told Zeppelin that I wouldn't be available after the Christmas break. And they were not happy about that. And it wasn't really my fault because they had been delayed. Now, I don't think anybody ever quit Led Zeppelin before. <laughs> so they weren't really happy about that. And I imagine and, there
1: might uh, have been a bit of a friendly a friendly rivalry between The Who and Zeppelin as well, kind sort of uh, drawing I battle know. lines. I didn't,
0: expect, I, I didn't expect them to take it quite so badly. I mean, it wasn't like I was that important uh, a cog in the whole thing. But uh, um, but they did. And uh, so they would never have hired me again. So that's kind of why, that, why I never worked again with them. But they were not going to take me with them anyway to uh, to the next step, which have been a, which probably would have been another studio like Olympic.
1: So as we continue with Ron, you know, you you mentioned Bad Company and you worked on those first three records, and I think it's a travesty that Bad Company has not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet, or even been considered for it. I think those records are some some timeless, incredible, still to this day, incredible sounding records. Uh, what what was your recollections working with that band, Ron.
0: Well, uh, I, I was a big fan of Free, and of course uh, they were on the Island label, and uh, they were. Uh, it was a very tight little company, Island. They had the Basing Street Studio, and attached to that was the record company and the management company, and they managed uh, Steve Wood. And they had Free on the label, and I think Andy Johns did, had done that uh, that album. And so I recognized Paul Rogers as one of the greatest singers that I'd ever heard. And uh, uh, the one of the um, I'm trying to think of, I guess it was Bob Pridden, who was the Who's uh, sound guy. Uh, He was kind of interested in doing some demos with what was then the Paul Rogers band. And they ended up using me. Uh, with the with Ronnie Lane's uh, mobile studio uh, down in Headley Grange. Now I'm trying to think of whether that was before or after. I guess it was after. It must have been before the uh, sessions with Led Zeppelin, or or they probably wouldn't have used me after telling you what happened with that. So I, I would think it was Headley Grange it was in the fall of '74. And uh, we did that whole first Badco album in 10 days. Uh, not the mixing, but all the recording, except for, I think, uh, a, a saxophone and some background singers and mixing, which we did at Olympic. Uh, but it was done in very, very fast order.
1: You know, uh, I wanted I, to ask you about something. You, you mentioned you mentioned Paul Rogers as a singer. You've already hmm. worked on records with Roger Daltrey singing, Robert Plant singing. You, you you yourself started out as a singer when you were a kid. And one of the things I always heard about, you when you were making records and as you moved into the 80s as well that that something that was had become one of your trademarks was getting great vocal performances when you were a producer from artists and maybe making people reach for vocals that they wouldn't normally get really bringing the best out of singers is that an accurate thing was that something you were conscious of because i had heard that a lot from people in the industry like well if nevison's working on a record you know he's going to get the best vocal he can get Was that one of your signature things?
0: I think so. I think so. And on my priorities, I think it's always been the song and then the vocal performance in that order. Get that song and then get the vocal. Everything else, how the guitar sounds, performances, production is secondary to those two things in my mind. So I think priority-wise, yeah, I did push for the delivery of, of the song to kind of make it, make it work. You know, uh, it's a story after all, you know.
1: And I mean, look at the singers that you're working with at that time and that you would ultimately go on to, to work with. Um, I I want to, you know, I I know
0: I, 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 you know, I, from Streisand to Ozzy Osbourne, it's a pretty, pretty wide path of people that I've, I've been involved with. You know.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, you're everybody's sort of reaching for some different things, and everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. I'm sure as a singer, but being that you yourself came up as a singer, I'm wondering: did you actually end up singing on some of the records that you worked on? Were you ever called on to add vocals? Oh, I have. I
0: have done that quite a lot. I've done some backgrounds. Um, mostly, I just arrange the, the vocals, and it's really tough you know, not being in the control room when that all happens. But yeah, I have done and I have sometimes credited and sometimes not credited myself with some of that. And, uh, you know, mostly I don't do it, but I have done it.
1: And how about writing? You know, I, as I mentioned to you, I had Bob Ezner on the show last week and there's times where he's gotten involved in actually writing songs and has a lot of, credits on on certain songs on some of the records he's done was that something that you did or was there a line there for you that kind of said no that's not my role the material is what the material is
0: no i don't think it's ever that you know i would uh, i would throw out ideas and a lot of times I'm not looking for the credit for that. I'm just trying to, to throw whatever I can into the project to make it successful. Uh, a lot of times I would just give ideas out. I would change parts. Uh, I would encourage um, people to bring in other writers if I thought it was necessary, uh, to co-write with other people, which I still do, encourage people to do. I would find songs for people, which I have done for... Uh, for lots and lots of people um including uh, heart and uh you know lots of different groups that um needed something to fit the format of the radio at the time and they maybe didn't exactly fit and even though they had some great songs they didn't they didn't they weren't singles or they weren't exactly appropriate for the to get them uh, uh commercially uh involved you
1: know well, well, we'll get to heart in a second, and there's, a, there's obviously a bunch of things we need to get to in the time that we have left in this hour, but um, that's why I'm jumping around just a little bit. But let me, let me ask you this, what, is, what, is the, what was the first record, and I'm looking, by the way, Ron has a website, ronnevison.com, if you want to see, see more of, uh, in detail of all his work, but if, if your discography on your website is chronological, mm-hmm. was the first record that you had a production credit on Thin Lizzy Nightlife?
0: Yes. Yeah, it was because I did that actually in England. Uh but I there was one I did before that called Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers that probably isn't on there and it was a kind of a pub uh country rock band uh that was fun and I took the Ronnie Lane mobile studio out to Cornwall uh and uh, recorded in a barn. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, and uh, that was fun. And, what was uh, your experience?
1: experience did, uh, well, yeah, what was your experience? Let working with Phil Linett and Thin Lizzy at that time. That
0: you know, it was disappointing. Not them. I was disappointed in my own performance in that one. I listened back to it, and I, I think that I, uh, you know, the mix wasn't as good as. And I, uh, you know, sometimes I, I kick myself. Uh, when I listen back to stuff that I could have done this better, I could have done, uh, of course, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I was pr- uh, particularly disappointed in that. I, I had two great guitar players to work with and, and, and Phil, and we did it in uh, the studio called Trident Studios, which is well, fam- famous for mixing consoles, too, the Trident console, and uh, it was a little awkward because the studio and the control room were on different floors. So as an engineer, you had to run down steps and to another room and to, to to adjust the microphone on the snare drum or something, you know. But uh, that doesn't explain why I, I I didn't do a good job on that record. I think I did a good job on the production, but not on the mixing. And there's only a couple of records that I feel like feel that way on. And that was one of it. But working with Phil was great, and Scott, and um, I'm trying to think of the other guitar player, uh, Scott Gorham,
1: Brian and, Robertson.
0: Yes, Brian. Yeah, right. and uh, yeah, that was a that was a fun record to do. I wish you've you got it. Wish you, you could got have a, it better. To tell you
1: the truth, there's a song on that record, "Still in Love with You," which has gone on oh. to become. A classic Barrymore. in Thin Lizzy, and 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 Gary, yeah, and it was also I think still in love with you was covered by Charday, if I'm not mistaken. But there was a, a a couple artists who have covered that song, which is definitely I think the the standout on that record.
0: Well, you know that song. actually didn't record Gary's guitar on that. I just I don't remember exactly. That was brought to, to us as part of the record. Oh, I see. Uh, and I worked on it but uh, I think maybe I just did the vocals on it and whatever else. I think that was already, which is a beautiful, beautiful guitar uh, thing on that song.
1: Right. All right, now we get to a band that – you know i could do the whole could have done the whole 2 hours on because <laughs> uh-huh. i love them to death i just saw them recently they i think they're one of the great underrated rock bands in the history of music and they are so so special to me i've been a vocal supporter for for decades now and that is ufo and you are the guy that really ufo themselves have often said brought them to the next level with their breakthrough album lights out You also did uh, the Obsession record. You did the reunion record, Walk on Water, in the mid-'90s. And you did their live album, which I feel is the greatest live album ever made Mm -hmm. and is my favorite album of all time, and that is Strangers in the Night. So how Uh, does UFO come on your radar? Where do you get tied into them originally from?
0: uh, Chrysalis came to me. Uh, And I to do a record with them and they I think they came at me from from because they like the bad company stuff. I believe that's that's what happened. And I listened back to the previous, uh, I don't know, three albums they had done. And they were uh, I think that Leo Lyons uh, from uh, 10 years after. had had Right. And uh, they sounded really good, but they weren't, you know, uh, I, I wanted to kind of like. I mean Schenker was so amazing and he he write he wrote such a, these amazing themes. Uh, I wanted to take it to the next level and I had been working with an arranger uh, named Alan McMillan. I got turned on to him, maybe it was Ezrin, uh, but he was he was a Canadian working Uh, And he had done some strings and horns uh, and some some uh, orchestrations on Alice Cooper stuff, and that turned my head. If he can work with Alice Cooper, he's you know he's right there with my hard rock kind of uh, uh, projects that I'm doing. And I used him for a Flo and Eddie uh, album called Moving Targets in the mid '70s, and I loved working with him. And I brought him over to England. To do stuff on lights out I thought it would be a great marriage to do some uh, strings and do some horns and maybe do a cover song which we ended up doing on lights out alone again or and uh, 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 it was a great uh, uh, you know took them to the next level Um, my biggest kind of issues with UFO, we're not uh, so not musical issues. Uh, you know, Phil uh, um, uh, didn't write the lyrics until the last moment, <laughs> and so I didn't know what the songs were about. Which is tough to produce something when you don't know the intent of the lyricist. And and uh, but he always came up with good stuff in the end. You know, the other thing is Michael Schenker wrote these great things, but he didn't write with the band. And they, so they were cons- they were con- just themes. They weren't constructed. There was like no, like, here's a verse, here's a chorus. So they had to be, uh, I encouraged them to write together, you know, for Schenker to write with Paul Raymond, to write with Phil Mogg, for those guys to actually get in the same room and write. But they were off doing their own thing. And Schenker would do his demos at home, and I'd get them, and they, you know, we'd have to kind of, like, uh, rearrange them. And make them into songs, and then Phil would take a whole of time to to do the lyrics. But in the end, we got it done, and it sounded great. And uh, yeah, I did the Lights Out album. I did uh, Obsession album was done in L.A. and I used the record plant remote truck for that. I rented uh, a, a uh, what was it? it was a post office. Uh, that was out of business, <laughs> not out of business, but not being used. A defunct right. post office building in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and uh, we pulled the truck up to that and uh, used that uh, because the record plant studio had had a fire. And so I used that as a studio. And, uh, but there was a hotel next door that complained. that the <laughs> It was getting too loud and they sent the police over one night. And, Shanker was in there playing and I saw on the closed circuit monitor, the police come up to Shanker. And uh, <laughs> so we had, to, we had the time, we had to stop at nine o'clock at night or something like that. But that was a fun album to do. Uh, and those memories come flooding back when I start talking about it.
1: Yeah, well let me ask you about Strangers <coughs> in the Night because that album sure. is a landmark record to so many people. It means so much. I mean a guy like Steve mm-hmm. Harris and Iron Maiden has said it's his favorite record. Mm-hmm. Um right. there there's it's interesting because a lot of the great live albums from the seventies we have found out as time has passed were not exactly live that the records were re-recorded and some things only have the applause track that's live by all, by most of the accounts that I have read and even talking to the people who are on that record as far as playing um, Strangers in the Night is is actually pretty much a live record. You're the guy that produced it. Where do you stand on that? Because Phil has said to me that it was actually one of the reasons why Michael left the band was because he wanted to fix something, and you said, no, it's a live record. It stays. And personally, I love the fact that it – Yeah, I love live being really live warts and all, but clear all that up once and for all as far as your take on it.
0: Well, it's not a cake so much. the uh, The truth is that uh, when you have songs like Rock Bottom, which is like eleven minutes long, and you're looking at vinyl, don't forget we're talking about vinyl in 1978 or nine or whatever right. it is, uh, and you had the limit of twenty minutes aside. You know, uh, you and some of your biggest hits are ten minute songs, Love to Love's, and uh, you know. Uh, how are you going to have more than four songs on on, a, on an album? So you, we had to have a double album. There's no question about that. And we recorded, I think, four or four gigs or something like that—Chicago, Cleveland, uh, Columbus—you know, something like that. Uh, and I was I was really two songs short. So we did record two songs at the Record Plant. Uh, studio D and LA and I used the audience tracks on that I, I did do that
1: <laughs> but, what two songs uh, so what that, two songs were in the studio I with live I'm apply. not, gonna,
0: <laughs> I'm not okay. telling you I've been to the two songs but I actually don't remember which two songs but not any of the hits not Dr. Doctor or Love to Love or Lights Out or uh, you know, I don't have it in front of me, actually. I haven't thought about UFO in a long time, so please excuse me. But, um, yeah, we did do that. Now, as far as I don't, I've read what you have read about Michael quitting the band over that don't remember that at all. Uh, I don't ever encourage people not to fix things. So I don't really, uh, uh, you know, I did have a situation with Dave Mason on an album called Certified Lives, uh, which was recorded at the Universal Amphitheater. And we went to mix that. We actually mixed it on a boat in Mexico, if you can believe that. Uh, and uh, we started looking at the little things that, to fix on that. And there were so few that we decided not to touch anything. I do remember that. And we called that Certified Live, and that was truly not touched. Uh, and then there's groups like the Eagles who are famous for, for fixing everything. you know. So, but, on the, but just to we, ba- back
1: on, on Strangers, the oh, okay. stuff that, be, beyond the two things that were re-recorded for, for the extra tracks, the rest of the record was, was pretty much live as it happened, or were, were those, oh, yeah. did you pretty go in and fix that, that's pretty, pretty much, much a live uh, album.
0: Occasionally, uh, yeah, occasionally. You know, if 99% of it was good, you know, I mean, if you fix a couple little things, uh, 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 you know, uh, that's a hard hard to remember back in the 70s exactly what I did. But I do remember one thing about that Strangers in the Night record. And I, I w- when I was mixing it, I was at a restaurant next door called Entourage and uh, uh, Sinatra. Uh, song came on. Doobie doobie doo, stranger in the night, right? And I thought, wow, that's a, that could be a cool title for UFO, Strangers in the Night. And that's how the title for that album came up.
1: Wow, and you know, I don't know. I'm sure you realize this, but the album was was actually out of the sequence was out of sequence to how they played that night, and some of the stage raps well, were be, cut down. And it, it was, was it's, it's since been reissued in the in the proper form with all the or the original running order with the stage wraps all put back in, and two songs that weren't ever on it added the way they opened the actually opened the show.
0: Well, I was never contacted about fixing that. It would have been nice if they did, but yeah. you know that goes back to what I was saying about the fact that you have 11-minute songs, you have a 20-minute side. You don't want to have a song and, and then you flip your vinyl over and then have it start in the middle of the song. So you couldn't do uh, if you think about trying to having it conform to 20-minute right. sides or 22-minute sides. You know, uh, the, the higher uh, you, you, the more time you put on a side of vinyl, the the level would start dropping after 15 minutes. It drops a dB or so per minute. So you didn't want to, especially for a rock record, you didn't want to have a, have it much over 20 minutes. So you had to rearrange songs to to fit that format. Right now, when you have a CD and you have a whole uh, 80 minutes, you know you don't care about that kind of stuff. You
1: know? Right. We're talking with Ron Nevison. We got to take a break. We're going to come back. We still have to cover Heart. We have to talk about a Kiss record that you did, Ozzy, Ultimate Sin, uh, and, and whatever else we have time to get in. There's, there's one record uh, for a band, that, a record you mixed, which is an underground classic, in my opinion. But if I have time, we'll hit on that. But we'll get as much in as we can. And we're, ca- of course, going to talk about what Ron is currently doing before we wrap up at the top of the hour. Let's take a break. We'll come back, but we'll, get, we'll dive into some talk about Heart, Kiss, Ozzy, and more on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Ah, yes. Blue Apron. Been telling you about them since the Eddie Trunk Podcast started. They are great. One of the... uh truly great services that has come out in recent years. The number one fresh ingredient recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Aprons food is all fresh. It is all responsibly raised. It is some of the best quality food you can get. And that is so important more sustainable food systems, setting the highest standards for ingredients, building a community of home chefs. Those are some of the things that Blue Apron is so good at doing. And Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. That's pretty amazing. So wherever you are, you can take advantage of all the great benefits Blue Apron has to offer, and they ship the same exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, just the amount you need, so they actually help reduce food waste as well, and it's great. You get to cook together with your family. All the hard work is done, and uh, it, it's its really a great experience. My kids love it. The family loves it. You can spend so much more money going to restaurants or high-end grocery chains and now spend under $10 a person for a delicious meal From Blue Apron. They got some great stuff coming up too in their menus like beef teriyaki stir fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice. I actually had that one. That was great. Crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds. Uh, So much good stuff. Really check it out. They really, really, really do an amazing job. And it's so great to get that box and open it up and see what's in there and all the instructions on how to cook everything up. Check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Eddie Trunk. My name, E-D-D-I-E-T-R-U-N-K. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Eddie Trunk. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This is Jay Moore. I have a new sports podcast every day. More sports. Hashtag more sports. You don't need to know anything about sports to love it.
0: Uh, All you got to know is I get down. I tell it like it is. I curse. I know. That's weird. And I guarantee you will love it. Podcast One. Podcast One app. Please hit subscribe.
1: This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. I want to get into the mid-80s a little bit with you, Ron, because you right. quickly became known as the producer who would come in and turn careers around, that you were the the saver, you were the resurrector of careers. A lot of that happened with Chicago. Uh, a lot of it happened with Heart, with the 1985 self-titled album simply called Heart, What About Love, These Dreams Never, huge hits, a huge, huge return to form for that band commercially for sure uh, talk a little bit about that uh, where you know were you were you proud of, of that sort of imagine you were of, of having that sort of tag and did a lot of it come from what you did with Hart
0: well yeah I you know I got a call from Michael Lippman my manager uh, and they said hey Hart wants to talk to you about uh, their next album about maybe doing a couple of ballads with them. Uh, why don't you go up to Seattle and see what they want? And so um, I did a trip to Seattle from LA. Had dinner with Ann and Nancy. Had a great evening. Um, they, I stayed overnight at a hotel, and and the next morning I went back to LA. And I got a call within a day or two that they wanted me to do the whole album. So uh, you know, at that point, Heart had been dropped by Epic. You know, and. Hart had one of the biggest out-of-the-box records of the late 70s. Uh, I guess maybe Boston was bigger uh, uh, with their, their first album. And uh, they had fallen on a little bit of hard times. Uh, and uh, Epic had let them go. And Capitol Records, Don Gerson, signed them and said, uh, you know, uh, if you guys, uh, we'll sign you guys if we can mutually agree on a producer and on the song. And so Don uh, and the band wanted me to do it, and um, Don said, "Well, you know, if you if you find some songs, uh, if, you, if you don't, you know, uh, it's not like I didn't like their songs. That's not not the case. But I wanted something that would be a hit." Uh, and um, so on one of the first rehearsals that I went up to Nancy's house up in Seattle, my manager gave me a cassette. Uh, He also managed Bernie Taupin, uh, Elton John's lyricist. And he gave me a cassette of a few uh, Bernie Taupin, Martin Page songs. And one of them was These Dreams. And I listened to that on the airplane. And I thought this would be perfect for Nancy to sing. And uh, because she always did at least one or had done one one song per album uh, on the albums that they had done up to then. And uh, so, and they loved it. They really did. Uh, what about love came from Jim Valance, who was Brian Brian. What's his name? Um,
1: Brian Adams. Help me out with that. Brian Brian Adams. Adams. Yeah, Brian Adams,
0: uh, co-writer and guitar player. And uh, they got together with Holly Knight and co-wrote "Never" and another song. And so it was. What was, it was a combination of uh, the management company uh, and HK Management and Capitol Records and myself. Um, basically stole a song right off the desk of Don Grierson called If Looks Could Kill. It was kind of headed for Tina Turner. And uh, I thought the imagery would be great for Anne as a rock you know, singer. And uh, yeah, so that, that all worked out beautifully.
1: Was the band receptive to that amount of outside material coming in, or I would imagine at that point they didn't have much choice because that was the only way they were going to get another deal, at least with capital.
0: They weren't receptive to terribly, no, and uh, they still aren't <laughs> to this day. I think I don't think they think it ruined their career, but I don't think they're, you know, they would have preferred. Maybe they would have preferred to be more obscure. I don't know. But uh, that's the way it happened, and nothing can be changed, uh, you know, about that. Yeah, it seems, it seems remember- like they,
1: it's... It seems like they have a little bit of a love-hate with that particular period because it was they such do. a huge period. They but do. even when they play it, even the follow-up record, Bad Animals, you've got a song yeah. on there, which unbelievable vocal performance in Alone, um, which, again, are our, our outside songwriters doing those songs. And they, they've they reluctantly, it seems like, put some of them back in the set, but it doesn't seem like it's anything they've ever fully embraced.
0: Right. That's you, you hit on the head there. They have never totally embraced it. Yeah, I found that song alone with another song called Once you So Bad uh, that uh, Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly uh, wrote. And uh, that's history, too. That that became a number one song and uh, on the Bad Animals record. Yeah, they they, um, um, they were happy to do them, but I don't think they ever really – they always wanted it to be their stuff. And I guess, you know, who can blame them in a way?
1: Let me ask you, uh, and again, I'm just going to move a little bit more quickly because I want to talk about what you're doing now. But in the the last 30 minutes we have, I want to touch on some things that we absolutely have to get to. Um, Working with Kiss, you did one album with Kiss, Crazy Nights. I'm going to tell you a story, Ron. I don't expect you to. Maybe you do remember this, but I went Uh to the listening party in New York for Crazy Nights. Uh, I remember that. Which was, you were there, um, Uh Paul and Gene were there. I forget what studio it was done at. But I will never forget it because we went into a room and there were metal folding chairs and there was a pamphlet on each chair with the track listing. And I remember you guys, you, Paul, and Gene being behind the glass and somebody said in the room, okay, in just a minute we'll be starting our new record, Crazy Nights. And everybody sat down on their chairs get ready and whatever media was there. And the way that record opens with that very sort of, you know, big, crazy, the song Crazy Crazy Nights and that big Paul Stanley, whoo, you know, whatever it is. I swear to you, in that room, if there were 50 – Chairs. It was so loud that in unison, everybody literally got up and down, like jumped off their chair. You heard fifty metal chairs go clink clink because it scared the shit out of everybody in the room. It just nobody saw it coming. So that's something I'll always remember about the release of a press release for that record. But what was your experience like? You're, You're you're getting involved with Kiss now at a point where um, you've got Eric Carr on drums, the, the late Eric Carr, who I love dearly, yes. and Bruce Kulick on guitar. And, you know, it's a it's a, it's an interesting time for them. They're still trying to really embrace the non-makeup personas and, and cross over into radio land. So I imagine that's why you got the call.
0: That's exactly why. And what wonderful people to work for, uh, Paul and Gene and... You know, I have to say that was a great, great professional. I mean, if you look at them with, you know, going uh, their career, you know, uh, going into the kind of kabuki theater thing that they had with the makeup and the the high heel boots and the whole get ups and the outfits and, and 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 they've they constantly reinvented themselves and they're still kind of doing that in a way and uh yeah i wanted to i thought reason to live would be a big hit and didn't turn out that way but um that's what i was aiming for for uh, for to get them on there was the those two sides of the of the radio scene in those days you know there was the uh, aside from mtv there was the You know, the singles uh, AM stuff and then the AOR uh, rock radio. And you kind of had to find something that would fit almost both formats, you know. But uh, that's, you know, we had a great time doing that record. Um, uh, Gene, I remember, sent me like 25 songs. And uh, I ended up using one or two. And Jean sent me like eight. And they were all really, you know, Jean. Gene, Gene would send me uh, everything. And Paul would just send me the ones that were good. <laughs> I remember that. And, uh, uh, yeah, I had a wonderful time with that Was I'm doing that. Eric and was great. Time.
1: Bruce. The title track from that album would become mm-hmm. uh, do, do okay here in the U.S., but in to this day in in England and Europe, it was like a top five single. I mean, it was a really across the board smash hit. The the yeah. title track yeah. in in the U.K. I know.
0: I think that a lot of people thought on crazy nights that it, that uh, that they got away from their heavier selves and got a little bit of flack uh, over that, but. You know, synthesizer was being used. And, uh, you know, uh, well, that's 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 when it was uh, 87, I think, you know, and uh, that's what was happening. So, yeah, I got a little bit of flack over the fact that um, there was synth used (laughs) on that record. Uh, But uh, otherwise, I think it was received fairly well.
1: Let me ask you about The Ultimate Sin for Ozzy Osbourne. Sure. Uh, you come in on that record, a big hit on that record in Shot in the Dark, uh, written uh, mm-hmm. or co-written by Phil Sousan. Uh, talk a little right. bit about uh, your your you getting involved with Ozzy, because I believe that's the one record, the only record you did with him, which would have been his fourth solo record at that point.
0: Right. Yeah, I got a, I, I was in uh, in London doing a record, doing a Cocker record. And uh, I got a call to meet with Ozzy and Sharon, and we agreed on that I would stay in London and, and do this uh, uh, Ultimate Sin, which turned out to be the Ultimate Sin album. And uh, it, was the, it was funny. It was great. It was a great time. Um, I had some strange requests. So the guitar player wanted to work from midnight till eight in the morning.
1: That would be Jake.
0: And that would be Jakey Lee. And I said, who still you know keeps what? those I mean, hours. I don't, I don't mind doing a, a, you know, can we compromise here? Because I didn't want to keep the people up at the, at the Olympic studios or wherever we were working. Like, you know, uh, you can't just turn, turn around a, a whole, uh, time, uh, period. And so, uh, you know, we, we kind of like worked it out and, uh, but we ran into a few times when, um, when I needed Ozzy to turn up for the vocals. And so I went to Sharon and said that uh, I'm having tr- trouble getting Ozzy to the studio to do the vocals. I said, I'd like to take him somewhere and go do the vocals. Where does he not like to go? And she said, oh, he hates France. He, don't like, he doesn't like to go to France. He doesn't like to go to France. And so that's where we went, took him to Paris, <laughs> got, a studio, got a studio, uh, so I could, you know, get, get it, get the work done. And, um, myself and a and him went to Paris, three of us. And, uh, we got a studio on the other side of Paris from where we were staying. And I, I remember taking a limo to the studio and it taking an hour. And, uh, the studio guy said, why don't you take the Metro? you know, the, the subway. And so uh, the three of us every day going on the Metro uh, to the studio to get the vocals done. That was really something. But
1: what did you find? Done. What did you find Ozzy? What did you find Ozzy like to work with as far as creatively and, and personally? I mean, many people know Ozzy writes melodies. He doesn't write lyrics. Really. Um, you were right. having trouble getting him to show up to the studio. I mean, what did you, well, what did was, you find? Yeah,
0: that had nothing to do with, that was, that had, just him to do with drinking and stuff like that and hanging out with his friends. A lot of time, a lot of time you get, you got to get people out of there uh, to focus them on what what you're trying to accomplish. you got to get them out of their, their homes. Uh, You know, when I did heart, uh, we agreed to, they didn't want to come to LA to work. And so we did a lot of it in Sausalito, which was kind of equidistant between LA and Seattle. Well, not equidistant, but a good, a good place to go. And uh, Ozzy, I needed to get him out of his house and his friends and the pubs around his house and, and all of that kind of stuff. And it worked out perfectly because he wanted to get back. He wanted to get home. And the only way he could get home was to finish singing. So, <laughs> uh, but he did. Yeah, he did. He, he contributed, uh, you know, uh, but he didn't turn up much for Jake's sessions, for instance, not because they were in the middle of the night, but because uh, he didn't do that. You know, he, we, we, got the songs together, cut the tracks, let the guitar players and keyboard players do their thing. Uh, I had to talk uh, them into doing Shot in the Dark. And in the end, after it was a hit, you know, Sharon came to me and said, well, what are we going to follow it up with? And I told her about the song that I had had that uh, that she wouldn't even let me do. And that's what happens when you don't listen to Ron. So we couldn't follow that up with anything, and right. but it was it was a significant success for them.
1: You know. We'll have to do a part two sometimes because there's so many things I would have loved to have gotten to that I, I missed out on. Uh, Damn Yankees, Michael Cardelloni, I've got to give him a shout-out because ah. he's the guy who actually connected us to make this happen. So uh, thank you to Michael, and, of course, Ron did the two Damn Yankees records as well. I just had Nugent on this show the other day and uh, been – beating the heck out of those guys saying, come on, get it, clear the Mm -mm. schedules, do another song or record or tour or something. So they're all in a bunch of different directions, but I guess never say never, right?
0: Well, We'll you know, also speaking of Michael Carlone, who is a great artist as well as a drummer, uh, uh, he, uh, you know, I did an album with Leonard Skinner in Nashville. Uh, I had uh, hooked him up after we, I didn't use him for the album. But I hooked him up with Leonard Skinner to tour, and he's still with them. And that was 17 years ago.
1: And we didn't even – we didn't even chance – Yeah, we didn't have a chance to mention Uh you did some amazing, uh, some great Jefferson Starship stuff, songs like Jane Mm -hmm. and all these incredible songs that, uh, again, Survivor, records with Survivor, Chicago, huge song, Look Away, uh, written by Diane Warren. Uh, It's endless. Uh, You mixed a record, which was of a band that I ended up signing shortly after uh, by a band called Icon, a record called Night of the Crime, that I love that record and so many other people do. It didn't ever unfortunately go anywhere but it's a it's a great record but be, i want to give you a few minutes to be able to talk about what you're doing now ron but one last thing for me speaking of michael and drummers when i listen Fine. to the ultimate sin when i listen to crazy nights when i listen to heart when i listen to damn yankees to me and an, this the two signatures as a listener of your work to me has been great vocal performances, but also, especially in that period of time, a very distinctive drum sound. And I'm wondering if that's something that was sort of a patent of yours. Was it something that you really focused on? Because I think that that drum-wise, a lot of the drums, the, the, the sound of the drums and the way they sit and sound on those records is very similar. Am I right on that?
0: Yeah, I guess that's my style. That's my style, and it's something that generally you start with because you're recording uh, drum tracks and, uh, with everybody, and then sometimes you, you kind of replace the guitars or add to the guitars or keyboards or vocals. And, and, uh, but the drums stay the same. It's kind of like I always looked at the drums as like the tree and everything else that you have or, or the branches that you hang them on. You know, that's the way I always viewed in my mind the whole rock and roll uh, recording.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, before we run out of time, I want to give you some time to talk about the here and now for yep. you. Uh, you sure. Are you still active producing records? Are you still doing a lot of work, or have you slowed down some?
0: I've slowed down some because I have a five-and-a-half-year-old uh, daughter uh, named Brielle. who's uh, I'm, I live in the Columbia River Gorge which is uh, right near Hood River, Oregon. And uh, she's in kindergarten now, so... uh, You got your hands full. (laughs) uh, I'm a hands full with her, but I am doing projects. uh, uh, For the last few years, I've been working with uh, a band, I think you know them, called V Squared out of Santa Rosa, Mm -hmm. California. Yeah. And uh, um, Vittorio and Vincenzo. And they are, they're the best pound-for-pound pound little rockers ever, I think. And, and they have a great family who have been really instrumental in getting them to this point in their careers. I love working with those kids. And I, it's the first time I ever really work with kids. And now that I have my own, <laughs> and she's been to see them live. Uh, in fact, uh, I have to tell you that she also... Uh, last May seventeenth on her fifth birth birthday went with me to see the Who uh in, in Portland, Oregon. And we went back wow. to talk to Pete and we have pictures of her and if you ask her what she did on her last birthday, she'll say, We went to the Who concert <laughs> So
1: Okay. I've got kids myself, you know, my minor yeah. nine and 13 and trying to trying to get them to when I take them to shows and all these bands that I know trying to get them to fully understand the the importance of it. It's it's kind of it's kind of interesting yeah. to watch it through a kid's lens because, you know, they have no idea how cool it was that Def Leppard just let them go sit on their drum kit or whatever, you know, they they know it's cool, like- but they don't get the the historic significance. And it's kind of fun to see that. Well,
0: I just took her to Disneyland this last week, and she she loved that. But I don't think it's sunk in yet what she's done. Right. But so V squared, uh, yeah, been done done three different uh, kind of projects with them. Uh, I'm working with um, uh, 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 an, uh, a solo artist named Corey Coons from uh, Ontario, Canada. I've done four songs with him already previously, and now I'm, I'm working on another eight, and we're kind of right in the middle of that. Uh, I just finished an album with a Portland-based band called Paradise, Tamar Burke and Steve and Tom, the drummer, which I've used for other projects. And um, I'm just starting a record with a great singer named Tess Sparr, and working with her and her husband, Patrick. Uh, and we're just about to go into the studio uh, April 23rd to start that recording. So I'm kind of busy here and there. Uh, and uh, the other project that I have to tell you about is that um, I'm in cahoots with Ken Calais, who is the Fleetwood Mac um, Rumors producer. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to buy the Sausalito record plant. Uh, who? Which is a, a studio that uh, I've I've uh, been working with. I was the chief engineer of for a couple of years in the mid 70s, and we're trying to buy it because right now it's it's actually a um, being used uh, for yoga classes. <laughs> All wow. the equipment's been stripped out of it. We want to refurbish it. We want to do an analog room uh, and a digital room. We want to do a school. We want to have a historical kind of uh you know ha- have it open to the public uh we want to do a, a nice a, a nice thing with the record plan and hopefully we'll be able to raise the money to do that um working with him and uh an old friend of mine named Freddie Salem who uh who was one of the guitar players in the original in the outlaws uh that when I did the ghost riders in the sky album and he's been uh, he's been talking to us about working doing something and so that's kind of the up-to-date thing
1: real quickly do you miss the days of the big old studios and tape and all that sort of stuff or are you okay with all the advances and people making records in different rooms and different states and different countries and computers and pro tools and all that where do you sit on that
0: that's a whole hour <laughs> <laughs> uh, where i stand on that you know uh the the tape, uh, you know, it's in like an analog versus digital kind of conversation, really, and they're they're, they're both great. Uh, in the end, if, if we're working an analog, a microphone is analog. You know, if we're working uh, with analog, and then it goes to Pro Tools, which is digital, and then it goes to downloads, which are digital, or it goes to physical CDs, which are digital. You know, uh, it all usually ends up digitized in in one manner or another. And uh, so uh, if you use digital uh, as, a, as a tool and not a sound, uh, you can warm it up by passing it through tape and uh, and the things that analog tape compression and things that it does to the sound. You can always uh, introduce that at some point in in, in the whole project. But I'm online, almost... as, as, as you know, talking to me about All this mobile recording that I did, I'm fine with using a barn. I'm fine with using a a post office. I'm fine with using a house. I rented a house, two different houses for two different babies albums that we haven't even talked about with mobile. Right.
1: Well, so, last yeah, thing, because I I, I, I'm just about out of time. We talked The Who, ahead. The Stones, Zeppelin, Kiss. I mean, it goes on and on, all the bands you've worked with. Ozzy, um, The Babies, which you just mentioned, UFO, all this stuff. One act, one band or artist that you never worked with that you would love to if you could.
0: Oh, gosh, put me on the spot.
1: So Is I know there what one? I know.
0: I don't know. Yeah, probably uh uh Pink Floyd.
1: Pink Floyd. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. All right. I well, have, listen, Ron, I would have loved that. That's yeah, it. Ron, I, I can't oh, thank you enough. Others, but that's good.
2: Yeah, uh,
0: um, yeah, I'd like to do it again if you have if you want to have me again.
1: Well, thanks to Ron Nevison for taking some time out from his schedule and joining me again. That interview originally happened on my Sirius XM show. On uh, Volume, my daily show, you can hear that live Monday to Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Channel 106, and that show replays every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can always grab them on demand on the Sirius XM app, so join me every day talking rock and doing interviews over on Sirius XM 106 Volume. And that is where the Ron Nevison interview originated. I'll see you next week for another all-new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. It'll probably be coming to you from Tulsa uh, because I'll be spending some time there, as I mentioned. And uh, we'll see what we pull out for you next week. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk. Instagram, at Eddie Trunk. Facebook, fan page, at Eddie Trunk. And eddietrunk.com. You guys have yourselves a great week, and I'll see you next Thursday for another all-new episode, free as usual, PodcastOne.com and iTunes. Dubrow and I'm Dr. Terry Dubrow
2: every Friday check out my podcast Heather Dubrow's World
1: we also have a brand new show the Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig show every Tuesday so
2: don't forget iTunes and podcast one tune in to Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig on Tuesdays and Heather Dubrow's World every Friday
0: pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw